What is happening, folks? I hope you all are enjoying the summer as much as you can. Um, hopefully this can make it a little bit better, because today's episode was one of the best conversations I've ever had with an individual who has quite the unique job. So this so-called shark dancer, that's what they call her, not only explores and finds caves underwater, but also has some pretty spectacular moments with the sharks themselves. Being in this field for 26 years now shows just how dedicated she is to what lies underneath the ocean. She's all about the exploration, education, and conservation of her underwater world, sharks, and caves. Folks, here's the one and only Christina Zanato. Thanks for doing this, Christina. I no really appreciate you coming on here. Um, I've Are been quite of new yours. It's like three, uh, three guests. Yeah, yeah, I did. How do um, you pick your guests? I'm sorry. Come again. How do you pick your guests? Like, how do you go from someone in Australia being a surfer to me here? Like, what do you do? <laughs> well, essentially, I uh, I do some digging. Um, I try to find people who are education, conservation-based, um, and essentially who work with really cool animals and do really interesting things that most people don't normally hear about. Um, and I've been following you for a little while, um, and I did the free diver, uh, Jules, in Australia, um, and she was really great to talk to because she has a whole different uh, spectrum of things to talk on considering she swims on the reefs and does all that cool stuff. But she had some good insight on um, how you know, trash is affecting their oceans over there and all the problems. And, you know, it's pretty worldwide thing. So and yours are just really cool because I see you swim in caves and you also are with sharks. And I was like, that's awesome. So I couldn't, I could not uh, reach out to you, but I try to, I try to pick a variety of people um, like Dr. Joel Alves in Africa, the wildlife veterinarian. Um, yes. He's working real hard with conservation tactics and strategies, and I thought it'd be a great opportunity to talk to him as well. But so you don't just do water-based, you do conservation animal-based. Yes, um, I'm planning on talking to an insect individual uh, in the next couple of weeks. So I think that'll be fun. And then I talked to a lady who uh, wrote a book about poaching um, all around the world and bear bile, the bear bile industry and pangolins and all that fun stuff yeah yeah there's a, there's a scientist that i follow i absolutely adore him and his uh it's called my, my frog my frog croaked my frog croaked yes it's uh, uh jonathan let me find out his full name jonathan colby okay okay cool and he is into the citrus fungus 
that is killing the frog population, salamanders, the, then it can go into wildlife uh, trade, legal, not only illegal, because everybody after the COVID concentrated on the illegal stuff, but what he's actually focusing on is on the fact that there is a, a lot of legal uh, wildlife trade that actually affects very much the health and safety of a lot of critters. His name is uh, like I said, John Dr. Jonathan Colby. You'll find them K O L B I or Y. Y. <laughs> I'll and look into him. That's awesome. He's on Twitter. He's on LinkedIn. Those are the two places I follow him the most. Okay. Heck yeah. Well, thank you. That's awesome. I'll look into that. That's. Because I follow, I follow all sorts of things. I'm not just ocean, although I'm very much into the ocean. I'm following <laughs> a lot of conservation rescues efforts, and like he is absolutely brilliant. Because I have a soft spot for insects, and yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. I'm talking to a man named uh, Leif Cox next week. He started the orangutan sanctuary, um, so I think that'll be fun as well. But oh. you know, you got to talk to as many people as possible to try mm -hmm. to. Are you still studying? Yes. So I'm currently in uh, veterinary school um, up in uh, the northern part of the U.S., up in Washington. Um, so Washington got a, State? Yes, Washington State. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So a couple more years of vet school, and then I can uh, start making some legal differences with animals instead of just advice. <laughs> That'll be cool. So how did you, how did you get into exploring caves? Um, like what was what was your tipping point because I feel like that's kind of a niche thing to get into well the the interest was sparked on my 11th ever dive I was uh, I came here to the Bahamas to learn how to scuba dive and then when I did that I actually ended up flipping my life over and within a week decided to come back and actually make stay here and work and live here for about a year that was the intent and we're talking about 26 years ago <laughs> and then when i came back after my certification so i fit i did my certification which was four certification dives i did another couple of ocean dives then i came back and as soon as i arrived i signed up for my advanced course and then at the end of my advanced course my instructor said hey tomorrow there's an opening for this dive into ben's cavern you're supposed to have 20 log dives. He said, well, I'll vouch for you. I only had 11. And he says, you're a really good diver. Why don't you go? There's a spot open. And this is also where I had the opportunity to meet to, uh, the person that will become my mentor, both in cave diving and sharks, my inspiration on Ben Rose. And he was guiding the dive. The cave was named after him. And so as an 11th ever dive diver, I walked inside this beautiful, it's a vast open water, open, you know, like entrance. So it's just absolutely perfect with this sun beams streaking down. This color is just absolutely crystal clear. I mean, the Bahamian ocean is clear, but the Bahamian freshwater cave top, it's clear. And I remember I was doing my buoyancy check and I looked up and Ben was just floating over me, motionless. It looked like it was floating in space. And I remember looking up um, as I was removing my weights because I was too heavy thinking that is how I want to look and that's how I want to be. So then we did this tour and I just fell in love with it. Wow. We had to wait a little while longer. It took me about two years from that dive to when I became a cave diver. Okay. So for two years I did some cavern dives here and there, but then 
as I was doing this cabin dives a couple of times, I, I went in a little bit too far and I was like, you know what, time to get certified. So I'm, I went to Florida, there was no instructor here and I did my first a full cave certification. And that took, I stayed away for about 12 days, had to do all sorts of technical training, gases, this, that, and that. And then I came back and then I started cave diving on the island on my own. So On your own? On my own, I had oh. to dive with. <laughs> oh. so, so cave divers do dive alone at certain levels, uh, but mine was just a necessity. So I used to carry around a third bottle just as a, it was my body bottle. So it was not counted into my ear consumption uh, scheme, but it was just there for emergency. It was like if I had issues with my gas, it would, instead of having to share the regulator with a buddy, I would have to be able to deploy the regulator for my tank, but it was not part of my gas uh, planning. Right? Have so you, just, how many times actually, have you had to use that? Actually, never. Really? So you're really never. good at what you do? Well, it's not a matter <laughs> of, run, you don't run out of gas because you miscalculated your gas, uh, then you shouldn't be in the cave. Usually the running out of gas could be catastrophic failures. Um, sometimes there's been cases in which people think they're out of gas, um, something emotionally triggers uh, a sensation that the regulator's not delivering gas, and yet uh, if somebody checks their pressure gauge, the tank still has quite a lot of gas. So, but I never had the psychological nor the physical need to uh, go on to my body bottle. But I was very conservative. I used to do like this 40, 45 minutes cave dive about myself. And I thought I was like, I would go in 20 minutes and come out 20 minutes. And I thought, Ooh, we're being to the end of the world and back. Um, you know, now my bottom time is three, four hours. And <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I mean, I guess it makes sense. Some of the caves, it looks like you go into a pretty deep. So I mean, no, it's not deep. It's long. It's far. long. It's distance. So instead of using, then the, the gear has changed. So instead of using open circuit, now I use what it's called closed circuit rebreather. You might see it a lot of the people shorten with CCR, but it's called closed. So instead of making bubbles and wasting the gas, the gas loops back into the system, is scrubbed by, from the CO2, and it has a system to re-inject oxygen so that you can rebreathe your breath. And you have like a very minimal loss of gas when you either change depth or if you need to change how your um, body, the amount of partial pressure, whatever gas you're absorbing, you want to change that. So um, that's efficient. It's very efficient. <laughs> that's it's awesome. Extremely efficient. New technology is cool. <laughs> it's a very, very cool. It's, a, it's an extremely it's not as new as people will think it is. I mean, it's been used. Uh, my dad in 1957 used it, but it was a different system. It used to be um, chest mounted and it only was pure oxygen with, you know, like the tank just sitting on his chest with like a rubber hose and it can only go to about 30 feet, right? So it's not into military, it was way, way before us. But Common use, yes, is a little bit more than technology, but what mine specifically does, it's called the KISS Sidewinder, is actually even one step ahead because also is a side mount. So I don't have nothing on my back. Everything is on my side. So wherever I can fit with a little bit of extra, you know, the tiny little harness in my dry suit, then I can go anywhere. 
I noticed that on your videos, how they're on your side and not yes. your back. And I thought that was, I mean, I didn't really think anything of it, but that makes more sense now. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're, I see some of those like little holes you crawl into in the caves and I'm like, well, you gotta, you gotta fit somehow, right? <laughs> you couldn't go with the back mounted stuff. There is back mounted gear. There is back mounted doubles. There's back mounted rebreathers that I could not go. So I actually had to wait until someone came up with a proper side mount rebreather diver before I can actually switch. But it really has opened the opportunity. So, and I mean, we can have a full conversation about this, but what it does is extended the bottom time. It also has extended the, uh, basically the capability of not having to hit all sorts of decompression uh, requirements. Um, it brings up quite a lot of other dangerous issues, but training is what makes the difference. Yeah. So it is, it is a machine, and as anything that you put in the water, it will fail. It, not, it might fail. Eventually, it will fail. It's just how we are trained mentally uh, to deal with the failures and then how we actually carry everything that can make up for those failures. So that is all part of the picture. Same as with cave diving. Cave diving is all of that, is the gear, is the training, and primarily is the attitude and the mindset. There's a lot of work that goes into the mindset and the attitude of, of being in a cave. See, going, strapping gear on and going in when everything works, it's quote unquote easy, right? Is when something goes wrong, one of the uh, biggest thing that I preach, for example, is not how far you can get in, but is, is how uh, well you can get yourself out maintaining the same mental stability. Yeah. So you, I mean, you want to progress you... slow. You want to take your time. You want to um, just do a dive of this level and then a dive of that level because if something happens 6,000 feet inside the cave, you have to have the mental capability to say, I'm going to deal with this as I come out for 6,000 feet. And that it's, two hour without current that could be a two hour two twenty two fifteen depends on where you are swim out Oof. you got to be strong in the brain for that <laughs> yes but it comes progressively yes right? like like you, you said you go to certain depths and then you don't want to become a caves diver certified and, and scooter in ten thousand feet inside the cave right you no. want to swim in and swim out and then swim here and then swim out and then a little um, mishaps happens and you deal with them, then it builds up that capability and understanding. Okay. And that mental stamina. It's a, a lot of it is mental. Yeah. Not just, it's physical, right? You have to be able to swim, to endure. You, there's hypo, you know, there's thermal considerations, but a lot of it is mental. Is time constraints, is stress, is, you know, uh, narrow perception, is increased, you know, like a goal feelings you name it and and it is all mental yeah i mean that's whenever i'm paddling out on the surfboard it can always be mental especially if you hear something thwap the bottom side of your board you got to be able to get in the right mindset to paddle all the way back in not freak out because <laughs> that could that could end badly and you so you mentioned like distance not depth so you like i mean i'm sure there's layers but like i yes. watched your video on the interstellar tunnel and that was really cool. Um, how long, how long is that? Cause I know it's like a connection point, but I wasn't sure how long that was or if it was more layering. Well, both. So that cave, um, 
so I'm lucky most of the caves that I dive here don't go below 100 feet. So in the cave diving world, they're still considered just a very reasonable depth. Um, there are other caves, for example, in Andros that can reach like the 300 foot depth. And so uh, the shallower the cave, obviously, the easier it is on the profile for many reasons. But um, the interstellar tunnel was both a distance and also was depth because those caves are actually built on two, three different layers. So I go in in one cave and I'm about like 55 feet. And then the other cave was about 60, but then to find the connection, I had to go down to 100. So I went kind of like down. So the cave might be like this, but then my area in some areas might be like this. So I may find this and come up and then come out, but then here there's nothing. So it was just a matter of finding not only the connection, but where we connected. And so it's kind of hard to imagine the caves are in three dimensional levels, right? Yeah. So I can swim from here, up through here, up through here, but I cannot swim from here directly down here. Yeah. I have to serpentine through. That's what I had to do. So I not only, I had to go down and then I looked up, then I went up and then down again and up. And then I found where the two caves connected. So how long did that take you? Uh, several attempts. Actually, it, it took me about five or six attempts from one side, from Gemini. And I kept bouncing into the same uh, kind of like wall, literally. Uh, it was like uh, there was signs. So if you look at the two maps in the system, they looked like they could, where I had put my new tunnel, because I put in a new tunnel, it was very close to the old tunnel from the previous explorers, Rob Palmer. But for whatever reason, I couldn't find that connection. Now, in the middle of the two lines, in the middle of nowhere, right, in the middle of the cave, there was an old piece of his exploration line. And it didn't come from where I was coming from, because that was all my line, it was all new. And when I went down to look into his line, I couldn't see, mind you, it was a little was it like a bathtub? I couldn't see where the line was coming from. It was just a little piece of line cut and tied up to two pieces of rock. So after several bouncing into like that where it wouldn't match, I decided to go through the other system. And by now I'd done quite a lot of dives into the Gemini system. So what happens is without realizing you collect data, right? Um, I'm pretty sure on the first time you had to analyze something. Uh, your professor had to tell you what you were looking at and how it looked and all of that. By the 10th time you put your eye through the microscope or you open something, you're like, oh, I know what that is. It's in your brain. Your, your eye has detected that when it's frayed this way and it's colored that way, that's what it is. Yep. Right? Yep. So it's the same for cave divers. We swim through, we swim through it. This is for me is one of the most important things. It's called dive side fidelity. So you'll find me that I'm constantly in the same place with the sharks, with the caves. I keep repeating the same things. But by then, I had absorbed how Gemini worked. And I noticed how the cave had these different feelings and what color was down 100 feet and what color was at like 70 feet and what color was at 50 feet and what changed in the sediment composition. So I went in from Aquarius, which i never seen before. And it'd been years since somebody dived it. Possibly, you know, that dozen years before anybody had been in there, before I went in. 
And I went in and I'm swimming down the cave and I'm looking at the line and I'm thinking, well, why is he going there? It, it, it just did not make sense. In my brain, it did not make sense. So I stopped and I looked at the line as it was swimming away from me and going deep. This is your regional exploratory line. And I'm like, it's going in the wrong place. And so I just looked up and there was like this giant opening. So I went up. And then I went across and then it was blocked. So I went, I saw, went back down. And then I actually saw the line again, but then I went to my right and I saw another opening that went up again, almost like a corkscrew. And then as I went up, I was like, well, this is not Aquarius anymore. This looks like Gemini. Just the color of the decorations and the walls was completely different from the other cave. Because one is on the almost land-based, Right? You have to cross a saltwater depression, but it's on land. And the other one is completely ocean creek. So the sediments, the sand, the silt, they're all very different. So as I corkscrew up, I was like, well, this is not Aquarius anymore. This feels like Gemini. And so I just kept swimming. And at a certain point, I saw my white line coming through. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i tied up into it now i'm like where am i because obviously I <laughs> so i swam one way of the line until i find one of my markers and i knew more or less where i was on the line that's crazy it's like a big maze <laughs> that's wild so you've okay so i don't know if that was specifically part of like you help with exploration and expansion of like current parks and island boundaries in the Bahamas through your cave exploration. And I don't know if that, yes. if the, if that like tunnel was part of that, but I mean, you seemed like you found a pretty big connecting point. That's really weird that you had two different types of waters that like. Intersect. That's and like, again, you, like you said, you noticed the difference because you've been swimming in, Gemini for you, but you notice the decorations, you notice the walls, and if it's the colors, everything was different. The texture of the cave was different. So That's... Gemini was part of uh, the Zodiac project, which is together with Benscape, the Lucayan system, two of the areas that I was asked to collect information and data to give to the Bahama National Trust, and they are both under revision to be included. Well, finally in 2020, I have the feeling some things might be delayed by everything that happened, the hurricane, COVID, but the inclusion and the expansion of these areas into a marine protected area. So those were my two uh, main projects. But while I was working on those, I was working on other things. Um, what is your time management like? I swear, <laughs> I swear you're always doing stuff. Like you're, you offer courses for like shark specialties, like technical diving, cavern diving, advanced wreck. And then like you also dive aside from that on your own time. And you're a huge person in conservation and education. Like how do you manage, how do you manage doing all these things and then still be safe when you're a <laughs> hundred feet underwater? Manage. Oh, great. Um, sometimes I would like to fire my secretary, but I don't have to. <laughs> um, so the way I do is uh, I have very early mornings. Um, we're talking about 4.30, 5 a.m. And then I have early, early evenings. So by nine, I literally crash. It's respectable. The time management goes into, and, and it's, uh, it, it doesn't really have a complete structure. It has some sorts of structure. 
in the morning there is a part that is about myself and db online so the posts email we're talking about outside of covid because covid gave me ample time to sit here sometimes i'm still posting at 11 a.m going through my video going how did i do this before when i worked (laughs) (laughs) uh there is answering emails doing the social media answering whatever messages i try to answer every single person that emails me and writes me messages uh, there's a personal component, so exercise could be a run. Uh, I have to walk my dogs, feed the dogs, and all of that. And then there's a water part, and the water part can be either whole day or maybe up till two. So then there is, after the water part, there's again a, a personal part, which could be exercise, dogs, all of that. And then there is in the evening catching up on what is remaining. I also have days maybe where I'm dry. So the days that I'm dry, that is when I'm going to be sitting and just firing away, writing articles, so working on all the other, the other things. But I do, unfortunately, spend quite a, a lot of time on the phone also managing things through the phone. Um, I would say that I still have that advantage when I go cave diving. One of the things I like to do, I like to put my phone on uh, airplane mode. That make that's, See, that's, that's reasonable. Time. Um, I don't go out much. I mean, okay. you're you're doing pretty cool stuff when <laughs> instead of going out, so that's reasonable. No, and, and you have to find the balance, right? You can decide to go on a four-hour cave dive if the night before somebody invites you out for a dinner celebration or anything like that. Then you say either yes to the dinner, but you replan your dive, or you say no to the dinner and you keep your dive so there are choices and sacrifices to be made um it's a a good balance it is a good balance there's a time where i say you know what yeah sure i'll I'll come out for dinner and then maybe i know that the next day is something easy maybe like it's two ocean dive with the sharks is not you know carrying gear through the swamps and going cave diving and all of that Oh my gosh. You and I have different definitions of easy. <laughs> That's so cool. Okay. So I know that you also speak four languages. Is that correct? Yeah. Would you call that like quadlingual? I have no idea. Uh, polyglot is usually the, the word. Okay. All right. And so when you're doing your social media posts and like answering phone calls and doing emails and stuff like that, are you like transitioning languages frequently or is that only in like specific settings uh well all my settings are in english uh it just reaches a uh, bigger audience but if somebody writes to me in french or in italian i do answer in french or in italian um i installed the different keyboards so the autocorrect doesn't kill me on the phone <laughs> most of my setting i've done i wrote some articles in italian primarily i've done some interviews in french but primarily it's english and uh, luckily now, social media, you can click on translate. Some of them are atrocious, but they're still, you know, <laughs> quite, quite okay for people to understand the whole concept. Yeah, that's cool that you can do that, though. I think that's a pretty, it's a pretty good skill to have to be able to speak a few different languages. I think it'll, I mean, def- I'm sure that helps you reach a broader spectrum of people so you can get, like, your workout a little bit better. But, like, yeah. I mean... Absolutely. I mean, English is the universal language, but I also was able to give presentation across Italy, for example, um, have presentation done in French, participate in French TV programs, just because I can also switch the language. To be honest with you, the language is what 
guaranteed me the job here first so then I could develop my diving career. Wow. I came here working in a hotel front desk because I had the foreign languages that they needed to interact with the customers that came in and didn't speak English. And while I was working at the hotel, I built up my diving career. And when I was a dive master, then changed. So the language opened my door to the scuba diving and to the possibility of staying here and doing that. So very, very interesting. And languages themselves, I've always been fascinated with communication. So um, I went from a total desire of this verbal communication. If I could, I, will, I wish I could speak all the languages in the world. Um, but the my desire of communication i think also inspired me into the desire of communication in different ways which is one with animals primarily the sharks and then also taught me how to um, share communication even when maybe the language is not the common one so find different way of creating a, a channel of communication um, i don't speak chinese but i can find a way for the, a channel between us to be created so that my message also arrives in those countries where I don't speak the languages. And that's a, through the people, they're the bridge, right? Between me and their culture. So if I, if you speak uh, Chinese, Mandarin, I do apologize for my ignorance, and I don't, but we both speak English, I can teach you something and then you can take it back and share it in your own language, in your own culture. Oh, that's cool. And you actually know how to adapt that to how to tell people without offending them. So Yeah. Have you ever had to do that like while like diving with sharks? Like you ever taken people out that don't speak English? Is that I don't know if that's very common, but yes. yeah, absolutely. That's but I'm the water I'm the water remember there's no verbal language. <laughs> that's true. You gotta be good you gotta be getting good at sign language almost. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually have a friend who is actually the world's first uh, course director, deaf, from the deaf community. And for many years, he struggled to find people that wanted to teach him scuba diving, especially at the professional level. Uh, so his name is Thomas Koch. And the reason why they were like, well, you're, you're, you're deaf, you know, and it's like, what, what if there's an emergency? And I'm thinking, yes, he's underwater and he can actually speak. <laughs> where we can't, right? So it was very um, eye-opening. In, in, in the way when I met Thomas. And so I started doing some of the um, American Sign Language. I'm not proficient, I do like Pidget Sign Language, Sign English, so I'm actually um, sign everything. But it's amazing how much it has increased the communication level. And when you have someone that doesn't speak another language, but you know how hard it is to speak another language, you can also adapt. So I may, I'm speaking to divers. Divers are divers. Right, a three-minute safety stop is a three-minute safety stop. Whatever you speak, Japanese, Swedish, or Italian. But if I adapt my English to your um, language, and instead of saying, "Okay, we're going to descend and ascend," and I say, "Well, we're going to go down." Everybody understand? Go, go down, go up. So I also learn to through my own struggles to use a certain words, certain keywords that people can understand, even if they have a very, very basic English, for example. That's cool. That's, that's interesting, the whole communication network behind it. I took, uh, I took American Sign Language in um, back in college um, for a couple of years. And so I think that's awesome that that guy Thomas was given the opportunity to, 
start diving. I mean, he's probably the most effective communicator underwater. <laughs> they, they are. Him and his the entire deaf community are some of the most effective communicators. He can teach us something. If somebody does something wrong, he can say stop and he can sign the entire what we brief when he briefed on a so what I have to verbally brief, right? He can sign it and say, hey, you forgot this, you need to do that. Don't forget to do this. That's cool. On the water. And they're like, um, and the other thing, for example, that I noticed for, for me, which is absolutely amazing, is actually some of the safest divers because oh. they're so used into having to pay attention. Um, and, and I notice it all the time. And, you know, like the younger generation, they go to the restaurant and they're like, yeah, they talk to each other and they're staring at the phone and where they'll type in and they might say something or they text each other. But if you are uh, from the deaf community, you have to look at each other. Yeah, I know like the, like the whole facial expression ordeal in, in the deaf community is huge. Like yes and no, like you gotta, like your eyebrows are, you're pretty much your mouth. Like it's- You ask the questions if you're angry or if you're happy, you know, and then all of that. So when they go on the water, that attention, that undivided attention is still there. Yeah some of the most effective divers and students I ever had. So when you guys are diving with sharks and if something goes awry, <laughs> do like if you have one of those, if you have someone from the deaf community with you, I have a feeling that they'd be pretty effective with getting like kind of instructing you guys on what to do unless you're the instructor, which would make sense. <laughs> well, what do you mean? All right. With the, with the, with the shark dive or if somebody has an issue? Well, yeah. I mean, I meant someone has an issue during the shark dive. Maybe not necessarily to do with the sharks, but if someone's like, let's say I could see somebody maybe freaking out if there's a few too many sharks around them. I don't know if that's ever happened, but a hypothetically, little <laughs> a little bit, hypothetically speaking. I, well, we have the occasional and it's very rare i mean i've taken down thousands of people to see the sharks um and we had the occasional person that gets down there and they as they kneel down so there's two, two ways of seeing the sharks the one i work with one is we go scuba diving the sharks are there and we just swim with them uh, they come within a certain distance we just observe them and then there's a specifically the shark feeding conducted diving which people kneel down on the ocean floors and watch what we do and we bring like a school of sharks over them and then i personally do the one-on-one -on -one course where i take you down and put you in chain mail so you can actually stand side by side with me and have like absolute bird's eye view of what it means to be surrounded by them but the average person we put them in line and we're staying about five six feet away and we interact with the sharks as the sharks swim over their heads and around them and so in the 26 years careers that i've had 25 years careers that I had um, I can count on my two hands maybe the people that hit there and decided that it was not for them and went up but I can guarantee you 99% it was not shark related it was a scuba diving related with the aggravating factor maybe having the sharks but the person already had issues with water in their mouths they already had issues with being uncomfortable scuba diving they already had issues with uh the regulator making them feel claustrophobic maybe the 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 shark dive in itself was you know the um the straw that broke a camel back but there was already other issues 
people yeah. that are simply nervous about the sharks, right? They're like, oh my God, the shark dive. <gasps> but they're okay with their scuba diving. They'll hit the water. They'll go down. They'll be like, <sighs> right? This just absolutely transformation in 30 minutes. That's crazy. <laughs> I want to I dive with sharks. I want to do that so bad. That sounds like so much fun. Your videos are, your videos of you diving with sharks, like make me not scared of sharks, which is awesome. Like I saw you or somebody like literally elbow deep in a shark's mouth to pull out a hook. That was you. Yes. I saw you pull out the hook and I was like, Oh, like that bloom. That was, that was one of the coolest videos I've ever seen because most people, you know, one scared of sharks. They're like, I don't want to see one. I don't want to hear about one. And then there's people like you who are like, no, I'm going to go down and I'm going to help them. And you have like that little box of hooks that you've like taken out of shark's mouths. And like, I think that's, that's a really cool thing. Really cool thing to do. I don't know how you do that, but. <laughs> I care. It's fair. That's fair. You, why are you becoming a vet veterinarian? Because I care about animals. So how are you going to do something when it's needed to be done? You got to care and you got to do it. Sometimes, you know, I just, my, my third dog, I had to let her go and, you know, help her pass. And she had quite a lot of issues. She was old and had sarcoma and all of that. And at a certain point, um, thanks to the guidance of someone here, they told me, you know, you're done and an animal's life to stop their suffering. You do it to prevent them from suffering. And so she was already in an advanced stage. And, and I looked at the veterinarian, I'm thinking, how do they do this? You know, how do they do this? But then it's like, well, they do because they care. Right. Yeah. So how do I do it? I care. I love my sharks. I love sharks. I wish I could help more sharks. I don't go randomly in the ocean trying to remove hooks from all the sharks. And that is something that I try to make people understand. I work with my group and I know them and I have the chain mail and I know how to do it and all of that. If I, I had people in the beginning sending me messages, oh, there's a shark in the Red Sea with a hook. And I'm like, I am sorry, I can't physically help that. And please don't try that yourself unless you're really, really comfortable and prepared. But at the end of the day, how do I do that is I want to alleviate their pain. That's a, that's a very, very respectable thing. I, <laughs> coming, coming from a community where I like to help animals, I think, that's, I think that's honestly badass that you care that much about sharks and that you're willing to, you're willing to do that. Because you know most people wouldn't, but I mean, yeah, you're, you're- People will tell you, let the hook rest. Oof. Right? But as, Oof. A vet, as a biologist, as someone that understands animals and all of that, I mean, who proposes to leave a human-induced object into an animal to take its natural course? It's like, well, there's something unnatural about the object. Like, <laughs> yeah. Why would you suggest that it takes its natural course? Exactly. That's like telling me to leave a nail on a dog's foot. You can't. Exactly. Can't, can't do that. One of the examples I say, if you had the dog that has a nail in his paw, you would say, oh, don't worry, it's going to rest. <laughs> You're like, mm, that can't end well. So I know they call you, uh, what's your nickname? The Shark Dancer? The Shark Dancer. The Shark Dancer. I, that video, I swear some of your videos look fake, but they're real and it blows oh. my, the video of you and the shark is like on your lap almost. And 
like I've never seen anything like that before. I've seen it with sea lions and like maybe dolphins, but never a shark. And it seemed like you calmed it. I don't want to anthropomorphize, but like it seemed like it like was somewhat connected to you. And that just blew my mind to see you like having a shark laying down with you. You like had this hand on its head and it like seemed to get fully trusted you and whatever you wanted to do to it. And I was like, wow, I was like, maybe Christina's part shark. I was like, maybe we don't know. It's a her. Her, got it. So most of my sharks are females with just few males. Um, most of the ones that like to be pet are, uh, primarily the one that like to be pet is a female. So I used to have a male, his name was Mad-Eye, that had started to come into my lap, but it took years to have them relax enough. It seems to be more like a female behavior, an adult, um, sexually mature female, so seems the one to respond better to the touch. So a lot of people think it's uh, associated with the mating. I don't think so, because if you look at sharks mating, it's not gentle. That it's, video you posted the other day, I don't know what that was about. Was that the male? Sure they lure sharks mating. Oh, no, he was trying, was, them, was that them actually mating, or is that just... Because you said it's him trying to prove that he's the one, but I didn't know yes. if that just meant he was going for it. <laughs> so the female resists uh, and the, the, the intention of the male. So, so when during mating season, the female secretes a hormones called pheromone. It's basically being in heat and it sends a signals to the males. Now, not all sharks mate that shallow. Each species has its own procedures. The sharks have never been seen mating ever. Incredible, right? We know so much about the moon, but not about our ocean. Oh, you're not, but, you're not wrong. <laughs> but the males, the animal, the sharks that have been seen mating, whatever their tooth or their vacuum mouth is, or what they do is the female sits and waits for the males. The males will come in and try to um, latch on either to her pectoral fins or the side and force her into like a, a flip upside down position to mate. It's internal fertilization, which to me is mind blowing, right? These, we have animals that are older than trees. They're 400 million years old and they actually have internal fertilization while the rest of the ocean is still, you know, reproducing on spawning and tapping, tapping, tap, poof. <laughs> so the, the female resists to test the strength of the male. So to our anthropomorphic interpretation, it looks violent and it looks like the male is forcing himself, but she is testing. And if the male is not strong enough, after a while, he, he has to let go because it's basically choking on the fin, right? It can't it can, it can ventilate. So if he doesn't have enough strength, she'll be kind of like pulls the fins and swims off till the next male tries. When finally she finds the male or males that are strong enough, she then will allow uh, the mating. So to us, it looks like, you know, very forceful, violent, aggressive, but that's how sharks are. Instead of being two males going, and then the winner picks the female, like some species do, in this case, the female picks depending on the strength of the male. What? Mm -hmm. I never knew that. You just taught me so much. That's so cool. That's such an inter I didn't know about the internal fertilization. I didn't know that the female was like, no, I'm going to go find someone better. <laughs> That's they cool. They have two organs called claspers. Yes. Yeah, the two extensions. Mm -hmm. It's just 
basically the similar to a to a, to a mammalian penis. That they yeah. only have two. Yeah. So, That's crazy. That's so. Oh. Sharks that can actually hold on to the sperm for over a year. Females can actually store the sperm for over a year. There's actually, I think I was reading a paper. It was in, a, I think, one that was, they think she held on to it for almost a three years. And the, again, we don't really know everything. I try to read papers, but it's very hard to keep up with all the research out there. But one of the reasons they think is, uh, well, what if a female doesn't find the male? And, you know, it's a pretty fast world out there. And so they're capable of storing it and using it when it's the, the season kicks in again. I mean, that makes sense. I've heard that with sea turtles as well. Yeah, that's, that's mind-blowing. I mean, yeah, if she's not going to find anybody for – she can't find anybody for a year or two. She has to hang on to it in order to reproduce. Imagine, imagine whale sharks. I mean, we have uh, animals out there like blue whales and, and whale sharks and, and you know, like uh, humpback whales and, like – huge and yet in this vast ocean we struggle with all our technology all our satellites all our this we still struggle to find them sometimes we might find some areas but it's not that we really know exactly where they are and what they do and all of this so imagine being a whale shark out there in the vast 71 percent of our planet you know trying to find a mate so i tried to imagine you know some of the the characteristic but for me it's important to to also read these things one to marvel at this creature that has so many unique you know, features, but also to maybe connect a little bit more with them and also realize that it is uh, a, a patrimony. It's an absolute a knowledge patrimony that if we lose before we really understand what is their value, what is their role, what there's a significance, there's no going back. We lose a 400 million years of evolution. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. I think we need to really figure it out, whatever we like the idea of a shark or not, to figure it out, to understand that. And they need to be accepted, included, protected, and, and slowly even understood and studied more. Luckily, you know, like the movements are getting better before we lose them. Because once we lose them, we don't know also the catastrophic events that something like that might trigger. Yeah, that's like... That's like the rhinos and elephants and all the land animals that are going away. If we lose one, we don't know what the domino effect will be. And that's a, that's a kind of scary thing to think about. Because, you know, with sharks, you have the whole shark fin soup. And I see all those terrible videos from other countries and even probably in the United States. And it's, 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 United it's, States. it's awful. And it's like you, they're probably not allowed to be doing that, but they still are. And you're like, hmm. Actually, there are a lot of countries where it's still very legal, including the United States. There's a lot of places where shark fin, so shark fin import and use is still allowed by the local legislation. So although maybe it's not culturally connected to the traditional, uh, let's say, United States, we need to remember the United States, it's a cultural hodgepodge. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's beauty of the United States. That's it's true. like a mix of cultures and you know, like, and, and, and colors, and like, no, it's like when you say I'm American, it's like, if you start looking, you know, there's a little bit of European, there's a little bit of African, there's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So whatever you say, oh, but that's a cultural, it belongs, let's say, to the Eastern world. It's like, 
well, that culture is also permeated within the United States. So one of the things I always tell people, if you want to help sharks, start looking into the legislation of your area. Yeah, definitely. Washington State, what is it? Yeah. You know, like uh, um, Seattle area, for example. Yeah, is definitely. still allowed in commerce? Can you still import shark fins? Florida just recently stopped the export of shark fins, just recently. Really? Yeah. So in, don't, don't worry about, you know, the, who is doing what's, you know, 10,000 miles away. Worry about what's happening on your doorstep. You know, they say think globally, act locally. Yeah, definitely. So you may say, well, shark finning is not really something that we, you know, eat in the United States. It's kind of yaha. You have it in many Chinese restaurants or Vietnamese restaurants on the menu, and it's allowed by the law. So instead of thinking, well, it's not here, it's like, yes, it is. And so try to change it within your capabilities, with your vote, with your voice. Yeah, I got that. Do it the gentle way. Yeah. Communication part, right? That communication works wonders. If you can communicate to people, like, because my problem that I have with a lot of people is, not a problem, but when they don't agree with something, they have a lot of emotions with it, and then their ability to communicate drops. Because if you show anger in a lot of ways you're trying to communicate, people are going to immediately be like, nope, like, I don't like that. But if you, like, like you said, if you can communicate in a, in a well-worded way, or non-worded, then... I think you can get a point across in a calmer fashion in order to make a true difference. Cause if you can, like you said, be nice about it. Like don't, don't, don't be aggressive. I mean, you can be, but I mean, you gotta be a little bit aggressive to get things done, but I think you need to, I don't know. I think there needs to be a sense of calmness when you're approaching really like difficult multicultural issues like this. Cause I think it can, I think you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Someone else might not know what they don't know. Uh, my family, I'm Italian. My family is a, a family of a fish eating. I grew up eating fish. Right? I obviously stopped. <laughs> uh, if somebody says, do you like the taste of fish? I'd be like, absolutely. I mean, um, um, fish. I used, I used to love the taste of fish. Now for emotionals and other conservation issues, I cannot eat animals. But um, the, my mom didn't know any better. Right? So my mom will bring home the fish without the bones. Or my mom will buy this because that's what her mom did. And that's what her grandma did. And that's what you put on the table, maybe at this time of year, or this is what you cook on Christmas Eve, because on Christmas Eve, you cook fish and all of that. She wasn't mean, she's not ill intended. She's not, you know, like a, a bad person, but it took me to uh, do a life change, come here, do my changes, and slowly talk to my mom and say, did you know that Oh, you know, mom, I'm working with the sharks, but did you know what you're buying here is also? And honestly, I was like, oh, wow. Oh, I didn't know. I'm so sorry. And she stopped. So we need to also start thinking about it. So the first step is we don't know what we don't know. They don't know what they don't know. Then if somebody keeps being insistent, you can go the other way, which is 
the legislation and the but I think picketing, attacking, being rude will never work. No. Going inside the restaurant and doing a big scene and storming off because they have shark fin soup on the menu is is not going to work. You instead you can maybe call the owner over or you can have your dinner not order that and I'll call the donor over and you know have a conversation and say oh we really very much like your restaurant or we'd like to come here but we notice we have this and um I, one of the things we use here on the island when sharks were still not protected there was a restaurant had sharks but then they also fed the sharks off the balcony and so uh, another diver and myself went to the restaurant the, the son of the owner and we said you know, he said, if you stop serving shark, we'll come here with our diving guests. I get invited out for dinner for my diving guests. So if you take all the sharks off the menu, all the turtles off the menu, this is way before they were protected. We went there and had sat down, the three of us at the table. When somebody asked me, where would you like to offer dinner? Because the rest of the food was delicious. I said, oh, we'll, we'll bring them here every once in a while. And he was like, okay. And he removed all those, you know, animals, although they were still legal here to be served on the table. He removed them from his restaurant under the promise of a little bit of extra business. <laughs> wow. That's a good compromise to make. It's all about communication. Communication. Yep. And, and I know this because I get attacked a lot. I receive sometimes very drastic, you know, like messages or very drastic comments. And it's just like, it's like. Really? Yes, very much. Even though you're trying to help animals. Oh, I'm feeding the sharks and I'm doing this and I'm saying that. And oh my gosh, you're, you're never right according to media, right? That's... You're never right according to someone, but that's, that's part of uh, exposing yourself. I'm sorry, that's a bad word. To uh, putting yourself out there and just going forward in what you believe. Is it 100% correct what I do? Absolutely not. Um, I, I don't go around saying that what I do, but I can also tell you the difference between the negative if I stopped and the positive if I continue. And I have two very good examples. And at the moment, the positive is still very much valuable. I talked to someone the other day, she was asking a very legitimate question. And I said, you know, the day I noticed that my sharks just stopped behaving, as a shark so they stop going away for the mating season they stop coming back with their bite marks they stop being pregnant because maybe they're obsessed with sitting there with the food which they don't sharks you can create dependence because most of them have uh, more of a scavenger kind of attitude towards food so you can't create like physical dependence um i will stop feeding them i mean if you're not changing them they don't they they keep doing their sharky things Uh, There's a lot of operators here in the Bahamas that work with different sharks, you know, the hammerheads, the tigers, the lemons. Yeah, maybe their behaviors change a little, but when the hammerhead season, the water gets too warm and they need to go deeper, it doesn't matter how many times you go out there with food, they'll go, they're gone. The water's getting too warm and they will leave the area where in the winter time you can go feed them and dive with them. Within a certain period by April, they're gone. It does not matter how much food you bring out there. They're still doing their sharky things. They're still doing the sharky things. So how do you think this is all linked? Like how, like in what way can we learn from the caves and the sharks? Cause you have that video of you diving deep in that cave and there's trash in it's there. 
interconnected. Yeah. I think. And I can say this as it is interconnected. Do you remember when you're in elementary school, maybe you had to learn the cycle of the water? Yes, yes, so I do remember that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Up to the cloud, it goes up yeah. into the mountain, rains <laughs> down, and then it goes into the little river and then into the lake, and then eventually. It's the same thing. If we if we want to look into the circle, and not only an evaporation method, but we want to amplify it, is into the drawing, put in the cave. So not only goes on the ground and down the river in the lake, but it also goes underground in our water supply back into the river or back into the lake or back into the ocean. Because, for example, Florida caves come out into the river. Right, but eventually the river will also flow into the ocean. So let's add the little point there. And then let's not just think about in ascent, so in particle ascending, but also in like what we know is a microplastic, what is known as the chemicals that we distribute, what it know is the pollution and destruction that we create. So in that big circle, if I start pulling away some slices, some chain links, then it will have an effect to everyone. Definitely. So, uh, the, and it's very easy. Like I cringe when I see like the, we're so used to it, right? Uh, the roads are covered in cars, dirt and oil and diesel. And then it rains and we see this brownish water, especially if you live in a city. I remember looking in New York, the color of the water that runs off from the street down into the, um, what's the name, into like the drain, right? Yeah, the sewers. The sewers, yeah, it's not a nice color, not even from the road. Well, sooner or later, that water with all those residues and all of that will eventually finish somewhere else. And with it, all the plastic trap and all of that. So how does it all connect is what it is connected. Yeah. All disconnection with anything we do, no matter where we are, from the ocean, from the water supplies. Here in the Bahamas, it's just more in your face because the caves are within certain miles from the shoreline so if i destroy the coppice forest over the cave and damage the limestone through for example chemicals they will then hit the cave water which will eventually will come out some few miles later in the bay maybe where the mangroves are or where the baby sharks are or where the baby corals are and then the nutrients or the negativity of what is transported there will damage all of that, will where maybe the future of the reef. And never mind, there were also the future, for example, of another industry that, for example, in the Bahamas is very prominent, which is fishing. You know, I don't eat fish, but the Bahamians is a fishing country. And so you might want to save the coppice forest to save the cave, to save the lagoon, to save the baby fish, that then you go out and fish. Yes. On your table. Yes, I agree with this. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, there, I saw they found like a like a little sea organism. Don't know the name. I don't want to say it, but it's like it was microplastic based, and it was like a. Based. Yes. Let me hold on. Let me not. I don't want to. I don't want to say anything. Uh, that's not true. Um, I was reading a paper in which hermit crabs that actually live in a, a microplastic rich environment lose about 42% of their capability to make the correct choice into their next shell. Really? 
Yeah, so it's a paper obviously done in to control the environment in which they had a certain amount of hermit crabs into a regular habitat and then hermit crabs in a habitat that was full of microplastic. And they were first given, you know, like small shells and the hermit crabs both kind of like changed for it. But when they were given the better shells, the uh, hermit crabs in the natural environment, I don't remember all the data, but like in the natural environment, like most of them picked the new shell, where about 42% of the one living in a microplastic world did not know which one to pick and they end up staying with the one that was not adapted to their body. Whew. Like you said, it's all a cycle. Oh. oh my gosh. I don't, it's disappointing sometimes. Like, I don't know when you see those videos, like I've talked to a couple of the other, um, like the other marine biologists or not, not marine biologists, but the marine biologists and they, we talk about the, the island of trash. Yes. You know, and like, that's just, it's aggravating. It's it hard. Is- it's hard not to get emotional about that, you know? It's hard not to become, it's hard to communicate about that stuff to other people without getting angry because it's like, it's such a huge issue. And it's like terrifying to think about for me. It at is, least. It's like an issue, it reminds me of a vine on a wall. How so? So I am on Grand Bahama. We were destroyed by Hurricane Dorian. After three days, we surfaced on an island that had nothing left. And help came in by the pilot's load of wrapped single-use drinking water. And for the first of three weeks, I was part of distributing that water to the people that needed it, right? And just like with my heart, I mean, you watch this pilot coming off the plane of wrapped you know, plastic cases, plastic bottles in plastic cases wrapped in plastic and it's just like being just pulled off and you're trying to bring them to the people that lost everything, home, roofs, walls, clothings. They don't even have anything but the clothes they're wearing. There are people that didn't even have the clothes on left once, once the island came out of this, right? And you're bringing them the water and what else are you going to do? And then you're thinking, where is all this plastic going? So it is like a vine on a wall because it just goes inside the concrete. And when you pull it, the concrete actually crumbles. That's a good analogy. Right? And so it's like, well, how how do I prevent the vine from going directly on the wall? Or can I, oh, I should put like a little wooden structure that goes around the wall. So it is such a massive issue. What I should have done, not distributed the bottled water. The first wave had to be drinking water. Then you can start thinking about distributing, you know, like the rotary came in and start doing uh, refill stations. Right? There but we go. Fuel station, it takes time. Three days after 70% of this island was underwater, people needed food, water. Now, right? Yeah. So the plastic saved those people. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. It just, it, and it can go on and on. So, how do we solve this? Is just think, I think we maybe we need just to go back a little bit into the production area. But it's yeah. not, I don't think it's as easy as, oh, let's stop plastic production. It's like, well, what if your family was part of, you know, the factory that works in that? Or maybe there were these distributors, or they actually produce the trucks that actually transfer the water bottles. And, 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 and. So I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying it's, it's like 600 shades of gray. <laughs> and it's 
that's a great way to put it 600 shades of gray well i mean like in hospitals and stuff like i use we use one use plastic all the time like needles syringes ever everything everything i grew up in the congo remember my mom had a metal box with two glass uh um syringes and metal needles and then they were kind of like a little bit like a like a little boiling thing with a little handle and then after she used them she had to put them in the boiling water and let them boil and boil and boil and all and then she could reuse the syringe and the needle and all of that hmm. yeah and but at the same time then then we if you want I, this is this is this is charitable this is not a, a three-headed dog this dog has like 600 heads but if you go on back and say well we could do that it's like yes and then every time a syringe falls on the ground, it does what? It's it dirty. Break. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then how much manpower or, and then, and water and how much time does it need to boil the syringes? I'm being the, the devil's advocate here, but I, it goes into all of that. And you're like thinking, well, maybe it's because nowadays we're living too fast. So if you want to go back, there's just so many reasons. I'm looking at the way people live in society and I'm thinking, oh, can we slow down a little? So if you want, I'm not taking one step back. I'm going to take 10 steps back. I remember in my 20s, there was no takeout coffee. People yeah. took the time to walk inside the bar in Italy at the cappuccino counter and say, can I have a cappuccino? They put the cappuccino in your little ceramic cup, okay? And you sat there for two, three minutes, drank your cappuccino. They didn't boil the milk like they do in the U.S., and you drank your cappuccino, you put the cup down, you paid, and you left. There was no takeout coffee. There was, so also our mindset has changed. It's like, oh, I'm yeah. not going to have coffee at home. I'm going to stop on the way and have, you know, my cup of coffee with my coffee, you know, my plastic lid and all of that. It's like, well, wake up three minutes earlier. Exactly. exactly. I may be a little bit old-fashioned, but that's what I do. I make my own coffee at home. I never do takeout coffee unless... Sometimes I walk to my favorite espresso place and I, and I say I want an espresso at the counter with my proper ceramic cup. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't go just into that. And then you go, well, we're living too fast. We're living to, uh, you know, take out food and all of that. And it's just. Do you, think that it, do you think that's an excuse or do you think that's like an adaptation that our culture has changed to? Yeah. Cause if, economics, right? You create yeah. a a need so that then you can fulfill it with a product. Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, Man. but then there's other issue, right? So I was talking with a, a friend of mine. She works with a company that they do recycle nylon uh, bathing suits and like Lycra and all of that. I tried to wear those kind of products as well. Um, there's a big company called Econil in Italy that actually recycle all sorts of nylon, including the, the, carpets that are used for like exhibits there's a huge production of nylon and she said yeah you can do that and then we're trying to package it and then we're trying to ship it so then there's international laws every time you ship something in a container and it needs to be sprayed for avoiding contaminants from one country to the other so if the stuff is inside the container but it's not wrapped in plastic the manufacturers don't want to send it to you because then they want, don't want to be liable for having lost 6,000 pieces of your products it's and they're this company is literally trying to find a way around that right it brings up our thing. So we were brainstorming. I said, well, what, what about this? Or what about that? Uh, for example, you can say, well, in Italy, I remember when the San Pellegrino, 
was only in glass bottles in a metal crate, right? And you kept it in your cellar. And when you finished the 12 bottles, you called or you brought it down to the water company. And for the empty crate that you return, they give you a new crate. But then you have people saying, yes, but how much does it cost now to lift and transport a glass crate? How much more fossil fuel do you use for a cargo of glass bottles versus a cargo of plastic bottles? <laughs> and as you chop one head, two more come out. It's like you said, it's like a, uh, it's 600 shades of gray. It's difficult. How do we do all of this? You said it's depressing. It is and it's not. And I do believe is is what I tell everyone is like, maybe believe that each one of us can make a difference. And if each yeah. one of us does a small changes in our day-to-day -day life, when I travel, I don't buy food at any of those vendors that is wrapped in plastic. I walk the airport trying to find a restaurant that serves the food on a plate with, I watch, I watch the people, right? Yeah. They have a plate and cutlery and they drink it out of a glass. I'll sit down. Is it more expensive? A little bit. Is it really worth it? Maybe not. Does it make a difference? In my own opinion, it does. There's one less traveler that produced trash in our travels. Uh, so I do believe that each one of us can do something. Um, maybe we can give up that takeout coffee. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, you know what hydro flasks are? Yes. So like everybody, <laughs> and thank God that's been a new wave because everybody has one now. And I'm like, yes. well, why don't, like, we should just, they like um, I know Hydro Flask makes them for coffee too. They have like their coffee mugs. I'm like I wish that was like a new wave, and you could just go to Starbucks and be like, "Hey, fill this with my drink," and then like, then we'll until COVID. Until COVID, yeah. Now you can't do that. Like I can't. I can't even bring my water bottle into into a gas station to fill it with water. You have to. Yeah, you're not allowed to like use the machine to fill it with water. You're not allowed to do that. Yeah. Like all of a sudden, it's like back to ground zero. Yeah, it's like all the work that. I tried to have a coffee refill, and the manager absolutely said, absolutely not. She said, it's a hygiene issue. If you get sick, then because of your coffee mug, then we can be sued. And I was just like, I'm not going to sue. But, um, <laughs> and, and that is the issue. We have all those. What, what head is that? Yeah. Right? It's always somebody else's fault. There's always the other issue. So we need to. And so maybe... How do we do this? One small change at a time. Maybe each one of us can pick three to four changes. Canvas yeah. bags, hydro flask. Um, when I travel through the airports, don't buy anything wrapped in plastic. And it's hard, right? It's impossible. But I think, that, I think you make a good point, though. Like pick three or four like, small things to make a difference and then focus on those. Because if you're trying to do a ton of things at once, it's not, you're not going to be able to do that effectively. You're setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. You're setting yourself up for failure and for like, well, what's the point? I'm never going to make a difference. And it becomes like that. Yeah. And then you get in that circling mindset that it's not worth it to even try when if you really were to just do one or two things effectively, you'd probably feel a little bit better. When I go on the beach here, the trash brought in by the ocean is horrendous. These are abandoned beaches. There's no one in sight in miles, but there is plastic littering miles and miles of this beach. Oh, I can't no. pick it all up. So yeah. what we usually do is we walk out with the dogs, right? We go on the water, we bathe, we have fun, we run on the beach. And on the way back, 
within a certain radius from the car, depending on how much pressure it is. It's like, okay, we're connecting from here on, as much as we can fit in the little car with you know two of us and two dogs, which is not much. And then we'll, we'll just clean that section, right? And we throw it away. If you turn around and you say, where did you clean? You're almost like, I don't know, there's so, so much plastic. But every time I pick a piece up and I throw it away, I'm thinking, well, that may be a turtle that I saved, or one seagull that I saved, or one fish that I prevented from being entangled. And I think that is how we need to start, is I can make a difference one little action at a time. Think globally, act locally. I can't save all the sharks in the world, but I, I've been able to help saving the sharks here in the Bahamas. And I've been invited to be an example in countries like such as Singapore and even China. China invited me there to help them speak for shark conservation. I think that you, I think like you said, if you do a few things really well that you truly believe in, you're going to make a bigger difference. Like in with you, you know, like the videos that you post and going to other countries it probably inspires even more people to do what yeah. you do in places where you can't help so therefore you are inadvertently helping other sharks by doing what you do locally which is I goes back people to that me, telling me i had a total different outlook at sharks i'm still very scared or i'm still scared however now i can see them as creatures i can see them as living being i can see them as not a monster and that is the first change i don't say go out on the arctic and try to hug a polar bear it's going to eat you right but we still need to see the polar bear as these creatures is absolutely necessary to be saved and we've done an excellent job with the polar bears we just need now to bring the sharks to the polar bear level yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying if you if you're uncomfortable, I totally understand it. It is some of the sharks are big, right? Yeah. And they can be intimidating. But the first thing is maybe you want to learn about sharks and know that there's a shark the size of this pen. The smallest shark in the world is a lantern dwarf shark, is about the size of this pen. So are you afraid of this? No. <laughs> and the biggest shark in the world is a plankton eater. It's a whale shark. It's the biggest fish in the world, too, followed by the basking shark. So start learning about sharks and then really make the difference and say, okay, they still make me a little bit uncomfortable, but now I have someone that I can know from and I can learn. And I don't see them as monsters anymore. I see them as creatures. I think that's, I think that's a great concept for people to build off of because if you can see them as you know the guy who created jaws he said that if he knew what that was going to do to sharks he wouldn't have he wouldn't have made the movie because it like ruined ruined their image but like you said if you can start seeing them as as creatures and not these like dwelling like terrifying beasts then like it's going to be at least it'll be a little switch in your mindset towards it. Maybe you'll be able to care a little bit more. Like there was where I live, I live right by a beach and there was a white tip shark spotted off the beach. And then everybody lost their minds. They were like, Oh my gosh, they're like, ah, like everybody out of the water. And then I had a buddy tell me, he was like, I don't think those are very aggressive sharks because they're reef sharks. He was like, so he's like, I get why people got out of the water, but I don't, if it's not like super aggressive. And so I was like, hmm. It's just a size, you know, right? If it's a great yeah. white in the water and you're not, yeah, yeah, get out. Just because a great white feeds on animal our size, but it, it doesn't make the shark aggressive. It just makes the shark 
being a shark. Exactly. And it's also the way the media portrays it. Like they had a helicopter flying over the beach and they're like 12 foot white tip shark and like just try to make it the most fear mongering thing possible, which is just not okay. But I think that I think that through your page, through what you do, through your website, through your videos, through everything, I think people are going to be able to see those types of animals as like creatures and like their ability to like be taken care of like what you do. And then again, you'll probably, we'll probably have people over here on the West coast start taking care of sharks too, because of what you do. Plenty of people. Yeah. And that's going to be, I mean, there probably already are and that's awesome. And there's going to be more and more and more as people, more and more people see what you do. I think that's only going to grow. And I think that's. The voices for sharks have grown and that is a positive thing that I've seen in the last 25 years. So when I first started, it was very much different. I was just like, I felt like I was like a, standing in the middle of the Namibian desert screaming, you know, hello, anybody yeah. else here? <laughs> but as time progressed nowadays, and especially social media, I have to give it to social media, the communication that social media allows and the quick intervention that social media allows is actually uh, a positive and yeah. to, um, good to it because this kind of like quick reference, this connection that you and I have had could have not happened, you know, 20 years ago when I started it would have had to be something where you traveled here in order for you to meet me in order to figure it out what I was doing. Or maybe you have to buy a magazine to read it. So yes, the media sometimes is negative, but there's also like a lot of positive that can bring into this wave. So. Yeah. I'm impressed that you're able to, you were able to stay motivated so well. And like you said, you were kind of standalone doing that. That's pretty cool. I mean, you, that should, that shows that you care, right? Goes back to that. You, you actually, you actually give a crap you know and like people that don't aren't going to keep doing it if even if they're the only one they're probably going to give up pretty easy but i don't know i like it i like your story i like what you've i like what you've accomplished it's honestly it, it's impressive and it's inspiring and hopefully hopefully we can you can inspire more people than what you've already done and i'm sure you will but thank you for doing this i appreciate you taking the time i know you're busy i know you'd probably rather be swimming in the water but <laughs> it's cool that you're down still so saturday oh, last no. saturday and sunday with full lockdown so no you can go outside to go exercise leaving your property so you can go running on the road and whatnot but the beaches are still closed and uh, the last ones i'm expecting next week things to open up i was able to have a look at the sharks last week through a special permit went out and dived with them and as I always say even if i don't feed them they're out there they're fine they're doing the sharky things so, <laughs> Um, and then we've been able to cave dive all this time. So I actually oh, yeah. published today on the People of the Water website um, all the exploration work that we have been completing as a team. So we fi I finally sent in the entire report of everything that we've been completing since last year, all throughout this COVID, and has been posted on People of the Water under the exploration. Wow. Section. I guess well, silver linings and dark times right you're able to accomplish more in one area oh, like quite a lot of data yeah i mean <laughs> that's that's pretty cool <laughs> yeah yeah you're the founder of people of the water that's awesome yes right that's so it's cool it's a small known profit trying to help me and now my buddy kevin uh to expand what i've been doing for the last 20 years out of my own uh, time and money uh, maybe helping me out a little bit with extra gear and things like that donations help me um, it's not, there's no salary, nothing like that. Quite a lot still comes out of my pocket, but it helps us expand what we're doing. 
um, by allowing us, you know, to maybe acquire more materials, a little bit extra stuff to um, do more. And as you can, like, if you go on the, on the website, it's a pownonprofit.org. And then you can see like the three voices are exploration, education, and conservation. And I always say, you know, we're explorers, we're all explorers. We need to explore what we know, but we need to explore what we don't know. And then once we explore that, the education comes in, we need to educate ourselves so we can also educate others. And then only once we have those two, we can protect. Because without knowledge, we're not going to be able to understand what we need to protect. So that's just why those are the three voices. But if you yeah. go to, I, I, we just posted it and you go on the exploration, you'll see all the cave work that has been done. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited to look into that. I'll probably look at that right after this. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh, well, I'll be, uh, I'm going to try my best to get the word out about your nonprofit to as many people as possible. Cause I think that's, that's a, that's a killer mission statement that you guys have for that. I think that's awesome. Cool. Well, cool. okay. So before we go, yes. I don't know if you know, I got to ask everybody the same question at the end of the podcast. What is the, what is the wildest encounter you've had with an animal? And it doesn't have to mean scary. It can mean amazing, magical, cool, just interesting. In your 20 plus years of diving, what's, what's the coolest, craziest thing you've seen underwater? There's so many. <laughs> I'm um, sure. Can I have three? Yeah, yeah, sure. Right. Go for it. Number one was and will always be, and no matter how many times this repeat, is when the shark lays in my lap. When she releases her barrier and demonstrates so we were talking about it earlier and then we didn't continue but there's a trust right she trusts that she is not going to get hurt and she releases her body weight into my lap and then she starts to pump water through their gills or through buccal pumping and i can feel her jaw moving up and down on my lap i mean that total surrender it doesn't matter the first time the thousand time the I don't know ten thousand it, it's just magical each time that an a wild animal say I'm okay with this and there's no forceful that's one two I would say witnessing the birth of octopi really I yes. can't say I know what that looks like but that sounds cool well so the females hide in the holes and hold on to their eggs and they nurture their eggs to basically death, to exhaustion. So the females will then eventually release the, the hatchlings and then she'll stay in the hole till she'll, she'll dies. So uh, yes, that's unfortunately what the octopus females do. So once they have the eggs, they'll nurture the eggs till their uh, ultimate death after the hatchling has been gone. So I was, because of the dive site without always been here, I spotted a female with her eggs. And every once in a while, when I was guiding, I would just peek over and see how she was doing. She would be there and they were pumping her eggs and ventilating them and all of that. But if you think about the coincidence, I was on a night dive, which doesn't happen every night. And we were on a specifically 30 minutes dive. And during that time, I decided to swim over to the rock to see how she was doing. And when I arrived there, she was pumping all her hatchlings out. So I arrived there and I, I was like surrounding all these weird gelatin and stuff i'm like what's going on and then i looked into the hole and she was blowing them out with her two vents out of from her head i'm not very familiar with all the octopus and so there was a whole and then i looked at them and i remember seeing all these little tiny you know hatchlings and then a month later 
I was having the same site and there was like Tina Lainey Octopi like this cross in the center. <laughs> I was like, I know you. I saw you being born. That's awesome. <laughs> I there... think the fact that I knew she was there and then to the timing of the night dive on the specific night, on the specific minute, on the specific dive, once in a lifetime. You're the, you're the octopus godmother right now. To, to <laughs> yes. a ton of them. <laughs> oh, 200,000 of them. <laughs> oh, you got a, you got a lot of response. You got a lot more responsibility to take on. <laughs> and then the third one is the groupers. Oh, we the have, Goliaths. We have black. No, we have black groupers. Okay. Okay. And I actually communicate with them through little, you know, hand signals. They are the smartest thing ever. And if you start Googling people that have interaction with the grouper, they just understand you. They're just absolutely brilliant. And I had one, I mean, she was like my guardian angel. As soon as I came down, it could be 10 divers down there and she'll zoom in with me. I taught her to wait her turn when I was feeding the sharks. I didn't want her in the middle of the feed. I was like, you sit there. I had to train her a little bit. Condition. You can't train a while. And I had to condition her. And I taught her, you know, tube up. You don't come. Tube down. It's for you. Um, Whoa. And I taught her, you know, to feed off my hand nice and gentle, just come in and take the fish. And so that is a third one. The groupers out there, they're just absolutely. How big is the grouper compared to you? Uh, one of them was, I'm five, five. One of them was nearly about four and a half. Ooh. Her name was Peanut. Peanut. I mean, that's ironic, but I, I agree with the name. <laughs> we had Secret Agent. That's, she was another cool. Secret Agent had a hook inside. You know, like here their jaw opens and there's a cartilage here kind of. Yeah. And so I had a hook inside and like after quite a lot of coaxing, I was actually able to remove the hook out of the grouper as well. What? Yeah. Wow. Really cool. Wow. Really cool. Oh my gosh. So well, three. I'm pretty sure I have more when we hang up. I was like, oh, I forgot about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, uh, maybe sometime in the future we can chat again and have a, a another good conversation about how to – how to save the planet. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you again for doing this. Um, enjoy yeah. the rest of your afternoon-ish. I think that's the time there. And yeah, I'll talk to you. Oh, nice. Well, I'll talk to you soon. And hopefully you can get back out diving in uh, the near week or so. Yes. Yes. Fingers <laughs> yes, fingers crossed. All right, have a good one. Yeah, of course. Bye. Christina does some pretty cool work and I got to thank her for coming on and telling us about what she is all about. Check her out on Instagram at Christina Zanato. You guys will see some killer footage there. And she's also the founder of a really cool nonprofit organization that is dedicated to change our relationship with the aquatic world through exploration, education, and conservation. It's really cool, guys. Go take a gander. And you can find this on Instagram at people of the water and you can see the projects missions and ways to take actions and if just hearing about her cave diving wasn't enough to make you guys be super intrigued make sure to check out one of her videos on youtube and you got to look up speaking shark and underwater cave exploration with christina zanato and then you can see just some radical footage thanks for tuning in guys and as always be looking out for next week's wild episode.